Numbers chapter 1, the very first verse, just to kind of catch back up on where we started on Wednesday night, then the Lord spoke via Debar. There are some who call this book via Debar because of the first three words, and the Lord spoke, and that's what that is in the Hebrew. But the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, and that is typically the Hebrew name for the book, in the wilderness, Bamidbar. That's why we're calling this study hashtag in the wilderness because a hashtag is also a number, so numbers in the wilderness, kind of got it going both ways. Okay, so <laughs> Bamidbar in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. And Father, we pray that you would reach into our hearts and our minds, head by head, Lord, would you draw us near to hear your truth and to believe in what you have put before us here. We are amazed, Lord, and we glorify you for your word and because of what you have spoken and done. And we ask again this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I know you've been watching the news. I know you're aware of these things, but apparently, Mr. Potato Head, Dr. Seuss, and the Muppets are now among the greatest threats to civilization as we know it. <laughs> Unbelievable. That, that we can no longer laugh and be lighthearted about things like this. If you think about it, though, if this bothered you, if you were outraged, as I myself was when I began to see these, you know, uh, these images of my childhood fall one after the other, understand that headlines like this are clickbait. They're clickbait. They are distractions for reactions. As I'm outraged over a plastic potato toy, the real issue gets furtively buried. And what is the real issue? We live in a lost world. We live in a world of countless thousands of unsaved people. And what I'm trying to say right now is it has long been a demonic design to get the church off balance and unstable to distract, as it were, to, to cause Christians to be fearful rather than prayerful or offended instead of focused and compassionate. That these things come and go, potato heads. They come and go. They're, they're a part of culture, sure, and, and they may have some affection for you or you might just be frustrated by the cancel culture around us and yet there's greater frustration in that people are lost. Don't know Jesus. And I'm so thankful that God, unlike our media and our culture, does not work in clips and pics. That's not his function. He takes his own sweet, precious time. God across history has proceeded deliberately, offering every individual every opportunity to find salvation in Jesus Christ. Now think about this with me. He spent the first 2,000 years of Earth's history introducing himself one person at a time. Adam, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's Genesis. And then 400 years go by, and in Exodus, he takes another 80 years to introduce himself to Moses. And then God shifts gears, still moving deliberately, still intentionally. He introduces himself to a people, the children of Israel, interacting with an entire people group rather than just these individuals as before. He delivers this whole people group from Egypt to Sinai. 
And then what does he do? He begins the slow, deliberate process of teaching them. Bit by bit, line by line, from Exodus chapter 20 through the book of Leviticus, all the way up to Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. Hey, this is the book in the wilderness, but we don't even leave for the wilderness for 10 chapters. Because God is still teaching. And most of Deuteronomy, teaching, teaching, teaching. Well over 100 chapters in Torah are all about teaching. And that's direct word-for-word teaching, not to mention all the teaching we gain by the examples that we see in God's intentional work in personal lives and history. God just straight up teaches. We've come to this next book, Bamidbar, in the wilderness, or again, as we call it, Numbers. And the first 10 chapters are all about packing and prep for an 11-day journey that will unfortunately take 38 years. In spite of all that, God doesn't abandon his people. He continues to move intentionally, to work personally. He's got all the time in the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And I believe the church is now in the wilderness. We are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And here in our wilderness experience, and I might not have said that a year ago. I probably wouldn't have. But the church is in the wilderness. And listen, understand, those who follow the patient pace of God will be the most equipped to handle what comes in this wilderness season. The most prepared, those who are in the word, those who are paying attention, those who are giving time to the Lord out of our busy, heavily scheduled lives in the wilderness. Now, midweek, we met 12 men, leaders, who can now, even now, by name, still prepare us. And that's the practicality of this morning. We're going to go name by name. In fact, I have 12 points for you this morning, and the 12 points are 12 names. And each name is an indication, practically, of how we live in this wilderness age. Watch this. Picking up in verse 5. These then are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Of Reuben, Elitzur, the son of Shadur. Of Shimon, Shalumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai. Of Judah, Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. Of Issachar, Netanel, the son of Zuar. Of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Halan. Of the sons of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Penazur, of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai, of Dan, Achietzer, the son of Amishadai, of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okran, of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deul, of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Anon, these are they who were called of the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes. They were the heads of divisions of Israel. And we're going to have a short uh, pronunciation quiz at the end of teaching, (laughs) just to see how you do with all this. 24 names here actually listed, fathers and sons, sons and fathers, but these 24 names are listed with a military intention to the list. This is a strategic, soldierly organization because these are leaders of tribal battalions. Each tribe being its own battalion within the larger army of Israel, 20 years old and upward, we hear 14 times in this chapter of those who are able to go out to war in Israel. So this is a military census that God asks for. It's not because God doesn't know he's strong enough and able to carry them through the wilderness. It's that they would see who's going to stand next to them. Who can they count on to be shoulder to shoulder as they go into the battles that are ahead? By the way, all these men are already battle tested. There's already training here. How do you know that? Because they routed the Amalekites en route to Sinai. Do you remember the story? They're down in the valley. Joshua leads the men. Moses is up on the hill. As long as he holds up his arms, indicating, signifying God's work in the people, they were victorious. But Moses' arms got tired and began to come down. So he had Aaron and her, which I think is great for any church, his and her. They were both there. 
working to hold up Moses' arms. And the people under Joshua were victorious. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 tells us, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either one of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. So listen, there is strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. I mean, pun intended, because God begins to number these men of strength. Now, watch this. Again, heavy on application today. Go through these names with me. Number one, of the tribe of Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shadur. Elizur, Eli, uh, meaning God, Zur is a rock. This is a great word to begin stepping out into the wilderness. God is a rock. Dwayne Johnson did not originate the nickname. God is a rock. If you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I know you can do it quick because it's the next book. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, in the Song of Moses, which I can't wait to get to, Lord willing we will, sometime in 2027. The Deuteronomy chapter 22, or 32, verse 4, Moses is singing. Listen to what he says. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. Truly, the first rock song in the Bible, right here. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Elitzur, by name, reminds us God is rock solid. He's rock solid. He's not flimsy. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't vacillate between things. He is rock solid. What he says, he does. You can trust him. You can count on him. He's stable. He's faithful. He's firm. He's consistent. I need that. Because in this wild and outrageous wilderness where things are so uncertain and so unstable, God is a rock. He's a rock. Has your life, oh, let's just go with the last year, felt unstable? God is a rock. No matter what governors or presidents or rulers or mayors might say God is a rock you can trust him the greatest human error is discounting God Deuteronomy 32 verse 15 look down at the last part of the verse talking about Israel he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation or verse 18 you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Down in verse 37, and here's the fallout. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. See, there is no other. There is no other. People are always looking somewhere, someplace to find stability. Looking for, what can I trust? What can I lean into that is, that is solid and sure? And what you find in this life more than anything else is the only constant is change. Everything ends. Things start over. Things are uncontrollable. And the area of your life, I know this for myself, where I felt like I had the most control, I find I have no control at all. God is a rock. God is a rock. Hannah knew this. Hannah, that sweet, one-time barren mother of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, she says, There is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. David picked up on this. 2 Samuel 22, verse 2, David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. Or 2 Samuel 22, verse 32, David said, for who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? And then in verse 47, 2 Samuel 22, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. Exalted be God the rock 
of my salvation. The firmness, the surety, the absolute. He is rock. Ten times David refers to God as the rock of my salvation. And listen to how he explains it. Psalm 62 verse 2 and verse 6, he repeats this line. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Do your best. I shall not be greatly shaken. Throw your worst at me. I will not be greatly shaken. There is no reason to be shaken in our hiking boots in the wilderness. No reason to be upset or worried or fearful, even as we see culture going down into the dark valley. There is no reason to fear. And I'm telling you this because we need to know this before the attacks and the distractions and the entanglements come in the wilderness, because they will come. The wilderness is an uncertain place. You never know what's around the next corner. But God is a rock. God is the foundation, the level place on which we walk. Jesus is the foundation on whom we stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, speaking of Israel, Paul says, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So we have a rock. And that's, again, best thing to know before you take your very first step is you are standing on solid ground, the rock of Jesus Christ. Second name of tribe Shimon. There in verse 6, his name is Shalumiel. Shalumiel, son of Zerishadai, and Shalumiel means friend of God. Friend of God. God is a rock, but the rock is my friend. Now, don't think of friend the way sometimes we do in such a, a casual, kind of flimsy way. There is great comfort in the climbs of the wilderness because my friend comes with me. My friend, the rock, goes with me, walks with me, is present with me. I read this, I immediately thought of the James Taylor song, You've Got a Friend. And yet, and yet, it's not like a casual buddy, it's not a cut up. He's not that way, the kind who shows up in fair weather but oftentimes is absent in the storms. When we say that God is a friend, he is our friend, Shalumiel, Listen to how Jesus defines divine friendship. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. That's friendship proven, because Jesus did lay down his life for you, for me. Friendship proven, no question. And then Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You know what that is? That's accountability expected. In any legitimate solid, significant relationship, there's accountability both ways. There are expectations we have for each other, that we will stand together, that we can trust each other. And so Jesus is the friend who is proven, who also expects accountability. And he goes on and he says, no longer do I call you slaves. The slave doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. That's full disclosure holding nothing back, friendship proven, accountability expected, full disclosure. That's the kind of friendship we're talking about when we say he is a friend. It's not casual. It's solid friendship, as solid as a rock. And what's wonderful about this friendship, if you think about it, so we're in the wilderness and we're uncertain, well, God is a rock, but he's also a friend who gives us full counsel. So we don't have to guess which way to go. We don't have to wonder if maybe culture is right on this one. We just go back to his word and test everything. What does God say? He's a rock and he's my friend who has told me everything. I don't have to lean on my own understanding. I lean on his. Because as we've said many times, especially where values and morals are concerned, values and morals change with every culture. They never change with the word of God. And the rock who is my friend has made this stuff known. So we don't have to fret over making that wrong turn at Albuquerque. We just ask the Lord. Okay, Lord, which way now? 
Where do we turn? To the right or to the left? Isaiah says, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And because he speaks to us, because he brings counsel to us, we can then in turn speak the truth in love. Because we are loved by such a friend who is proven, who calls for accountability, who has fully disclosed everything. And by the way, speaking of Jesus, number three, verse seven of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. So listen to this. Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. I like Nachshon. I hardly know him. But just what I've learned of him. Nachshon. First of all, note this. His name means enchanter. We were doing so well. Rock, friend, enchanter. And, and yeah, it, it's what you think. You read Enchanter, and you got to go, so this guy's name means like an Egyptian snake charmer? Well, that's where it came from. In fact, it comes from the Hebrew word Nahash, which means snake. Remember, th this people, they're only 13 months or so now out from Egypt. And so this serpentine moniker is probably a leftover of 400 years of living in a pagan land. And you just kind of get used to the names. And, oh, I, I like the sound of Nahash. <laughs> Nahash or Nahshon, snake boy. <laughs> Enchanter. You know what? There's a positive side to this. This is what God can do with any name. Y yeah, from a pagan view, you could say it means enchanter. But from a godly view, it means one who foretells. You know what we need in the wilderness? We need our prophets. We need those who foretell. We need to hear from the prophets. And the prophets in this book are, by the way, what make this book so significant and so different than any other. The prophets. Speaking things that we have seen, they spoke, and then it happened. They spoke, and it happened over and over. Nothing else is like this. No other book is so proven by prophecy itself. And we need our prophets in the wilderness. They bring that encouragement. We need the Moses figure, the one who's speaking truth, who's leading out. And I'm not talking about diviners or fortune tellers. The Bible itself, Paul the Apostle, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. All the way over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I just wanted to do 12, 13, and 14 this morning, but I don't have time. So just listen to this. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Paul says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Not so you can be some impressive holy person. No, the spiritual gifts are to minister to the body. The spiritual gifts are the power to witness in this world. And he says, desire these things, but especially, note this, especially that you may prophesy. We need our prophets. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church, he says. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. We need our prophets. And note again how he defines the prophet in the church age. Edification, exhortation, consolation, Biblical prophecy for the church in the wilderness in this age. We need our prophets. We need our nachshons, those who speak truth. Now, it is worth noting and important to understand that there is a fine line between prophets and enchanters. There are plenty of enchanters out there today, even those who would infiltrate the church or rise up in the church, enchanters. Interesting to listen to, 
You know, they're charismatic. They can draw a following. They seem to have some insight, some inside knowledge. Enchanters. Jesus called them false prophets. And he said, you will see many of those in the wilderness of the last days. So keep your eyes open. Don't be fooled. And at the same time, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. It's the last thing we want to do. Put out the lampstand of our fellowship. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Well, how do we know if it's legit? Paul says, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. How do we know that which is good? I'll tell you what, two ways you know a prophet is legit. They will honor Jesus and they will speak according to this word. That's legitimate prophecy. Anyone who takes the honor for themselves, question that. Anyone who will not speak according to this word or is in contradiction to the word of God, the Bible, the Holy Writ, you don't listen to that. You test everything and you hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. So in the wilderness, wise spiritual discernment is a must because there will be legitimate prophets given to the church and there will be false prophets as well. But there's more to Nakshan here than, than prophecy. Have you heard the name before? Actually, I should say there's something prophetic right here, even in his name. We see him for the first time in Exodus chapter 6, verse 23. His sister married Aaron. But, but that's not the prophetic indication. In, in the book of Numbers, we'll see chapter 7, he is first in line to bring a leadership gift coming from the tribe of Judah from this leader, Nachshon, but, but that's still not prophetic. Nachshon is named 12 times in the Bible. Still not prophetic, but he's named in Exodus, in Numbers, and then all of a sudden we see that prophetic lamp go on because we hear him named in the book of Ruth. We hear him named in the Chronicles. And the last two mentions blow this wide open. Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, Aminadab, the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. See where we're going? Matthew chapter 1, down in verse 16, says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, Mary, by whom, Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. The Davidic line and Nakshon shows up in Messiah's lineage. And I, I love that. Now that's the legal lineage. Matthew chapter 1 is the legal line of Messiah. There's a problem with that line. There's a guy named Jeconiah who's in that line who becomes cursed. And no man after him of that lineage can sit on the throne. So that could be a problem if Joseph had actually been Jesus' father. But he's not. Right? Mary's mom, but the Holy Spirit came to Mary. And so Jesus was born both God and man. And we find the biological lineage given by Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, that says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Joseph's father, by the way, was named Jacob. Eli was then... Mary's father. So we get Mary's lineage. It goes both ways, and this lineage bypasses. See, Jeconiah was along the line of Solomon, David's son Solomon, but I'm going to mess this up, but we see coming along the other line, Nathan, I believe it's Nathan. Is that right? Somebody give me a nod. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, it's Nathan. By that line comes the lineage of Mary. So the biological line of Jesus bypasses the cursed line, goes right to Mary. Jesus is born the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nachshon. And so here he is. I point all that out simply to say this. If, if your name is besmirched, by perhaps some past immorality, your reputation more snakish than spiritual, 
Jesus gives new value to any name, any name. Jesus is the one. He redeems the name as he redeems the person. He washes clean even the most ugly of names or backgrounds. And even more than that, Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. That's the kind of friend I want. Secret names. But he'll give you a new name. Now, the next two names in Numbers chapter 1, we're going to take together. There in verse 8, of Issachar, Netanel, the son of Zuar, and of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Halan. Netanel, the son of Zuar, his name means given of God. Given of God. I like that. And then of tribe Zebulun, where, wait a minute, is, is that right? Do I have Netanel on here? Yeah, I do. Okay, Issachar, Netanel, verse 8. There's so many names, I'm just getting lost in Judaism. Okay. Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Halan. Yeah. So Eliab's name means my God is father. My God is father. Eliab, Abba, father. El, God, Eliab. His name means my God is father. Now, here's why I'm taking these two names together. My God, given of God, and my God is Father. Given of God, and my God is Father. When you put that together, don't ever forget this. You are here. You exist, even in the wilderness, because God is the Father who gave you this life. You are given of God, and God is your Father. Why is that so significant in the wilderness? Because we can start to doubt why we're here at all. Even if, if life gets hard in the wilderness, we can say, why? Why am I even here? You've been given of God. God's your father. Or if you're back in the back of the pack and you just feel so insignificant in the wilderness, what's my point? I'm not significant. I'm not, I'm not a Moses or an Aaron. I'm not even a Nachshon. I'm just back here in the group. You were given of God. God is your father. Listen to how David puts it in Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Note this. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That word unformed substance in the Hebrew is golmi. Your eyes have seen my golmi. What does it mean? Embryo. For anyone who questions whether God had anything to do with your embryonic self, he has seen, he knitted, he was working on you as a golmi, as an embryo. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Incredibly significant verse. Not only does it absolutely decry and put down abortion, but this truth alone, that I have been given of God and God is my Father, can wash away despair in the wilderness like cool spring water. Suddenly I realize, I may not understand why, I may not understand how, but I understand I exist because at some point God said, I want Rick in the world. I'm going to knit him together. I'm going to give him life. There is your significance. And by the way, you were so valued by God that not only did he make you, not only is he your father, but then he would die for you that you could live forever with him. Do, do we need to hear anything else? Oh, I'm so worthless. No, you're not because God doesn't make worthless things. You're given of God. God is your father. Maybe you think you know, part of my issues is my father was so harsh. No, he's not. God is your father. You may have had a man who was steward and a poor steward at that. Or you may have had a man that was a great steward as your dad. It's irrelevant. God is your father. And you have been given by God. 
The next one, of, of tribe Joseph, look down at verse 10. Of tribe Joseph, we actually have two sons, Ephraim and, and Manasseh. And so of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. Elishama. El-e-shama. The Shema means hear. God hears. God hears. My friends, here in the wilderness, God will hear you. He does not ignore the desert prayers of his people. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. That is authenticity. That is genuinely you're calling on the name of the Lord. Who, by the way, is your rock and your friend. He is the one who speaks prophetically into your life. He is your father. He is the one who has given you. He hears you. Isaiah 65, 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Kind of like radar and mash. <laughs> Always knows ahead of time. If you remember that old character from that old show. I could spend so much more time on this. But the simple truth, the simple reality, my friends, is in the hardest of times, in the most bleak or the most desolate of times, God hears. Well, he's not answering me. Maybe not as you would like. Or maybe not in your timing. And I can speak to timing in my life personally right now. I can talk to you about timing. Anytime you want, I can sit down with you. We can talk about God not moving on your timetable because I get that. But his timing's perfect. And I know that I know that I know every single prayer that I have prayed to bring my son Christopher home, God has heard. God has heard. He hears you. He's listening. So talk to him. Of Joseph, verse 10 continuing, uh, of Joseph, of Manasseh, we have now Gamaliel. It's a familiar name. I think Gamaliel, son of Petazur, Gamaliel, God rewards. God rewards. Genesis 15:1, going all the way back, Abraham had just come out of war himself and was no doubt a little shaken up because God said, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward this is something we need to understand is that our reward is not heaven our reward is God our reward is Jesus just to be with him just to be in his presence but God rewards so not only is he reward but he rewards the trek through the wilderness doesn't end with a fizzle of disappointment there's a reward ceremony coming to look forward to and it promises to be really cool. And I'm not going to try and define it for you. I'm just going to let Scripture tell you. So listen to this. Some of you have said, Rick, you've said before that there are rewards other than salvation. And I think that's weird. Well, then you talk to the Bible about it. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 says the following. If any man's work which he has built on it, that is on the foundation, rock-solid foundation of Jesus, if any work he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Put that together with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul says to the church, the saved, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Wait, I, I, I thought my judgment already happened at the cross. I thought Jesus took judgment so that I'm not judged. Listen, you're going to appear before the judgment seat, the bema, of Christ, that, that tiered stand that the winners of Olympic Games would stand on as they received their medals. That's the picture, the bema seat of Jesus so that, listen, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if he's talking about salvation there, then suddenly grace is irrelevant and doesn't work because it's about working for my my, you know, my deeds, getting what I deserve because of what I've done. It's not about salvation. You're saved by grace. But there is also recompense for deeds. There are rewards. There's going to be a ceremony, my friends. Yes, there's salvation. There are also rewards. 
as the Lord had already saved, delivered his people out of Egypt and would get them to the promised land, so he will with you. But there are rewards coming. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly, Revelation 22, 12, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Doesn't shake your salvation. It just says there are rewards as well. What kind of rewards, Rick? I don't know. I'm thinking anything from crowns to three musketeers. It's going to be, you know, one of the... There are rewards, and we'll leave it at that. By the way, Gamaliel, God rewards, that's an interesting name. It was very popular among rabbis in the first century. There's more than one we see back historically, but it was a Gamaliel who wisely said of the early church, Acts chapter 5, verse 38, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Wise words. God rewards. But the God who rewards will also judge all who stand opposed to his standards, which includes this world in this age, in this generation. So, verse 11 of tribe Benjamin, we have Abidan, the son of Gideonai. Abidan means my father is judge. My father is judge. Brothers and sisters in the church understand in this wilderness time, God will judge. God will deal with the inequities and the injustices and the things done against you and the persecutions and the problems and challenges. God will judge these things and he will judge them perfectly. Even Abraham knew that. He challenged God on it when God was intent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, remember that conversation back in Genesis 18? He begins to try to whittle God down in terms of numbers. What if 50 men are righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you destroy the city? What if 40? What if 30? What if 20? What if 10? And all the while God says, if there's even 10, there's even five righteous people. There was one. One righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah named Lot, and God would get him out. His wife would become a salt shaker. That's another story. <laughs> but Abraham says in Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He does. He will. In fact, Psalm 19, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. But you know what's funny to me? The world that denies God, the righteous judge, has appropriated a certain verse inappropriately. You know the one I'm talking about. They have grabbed hold of the verse. They love to quote this out of context, out of meeting, and in the King James. The world will say to you, judge not that you not be judged. I love when non-believers say that. <laughs> judge not that you not be judged. I like to say, hey, you make judgments every day. Everything from ice cream to Instagram. What flavor do you like? I'm a Cherry's Garcia man. That's a judgment. All ice cream is a judgment call. Instagram, who are you going to follow on Instagram? It's a judgment. Who are you going to friend on Facebook? That's a judge. You've just made judgments. We judge everything. We're always judging. And some of the strongest judgment comes from those who say, don't judge me. Judge not that you not be judged. Can I clarify something here? Jesus didn't just say, judge not. No judgment. Judgment's out the window. No, he qualifies it in the same chapter. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you not be judged. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, in the same teaching, he says, judge not according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus says, judge Absolutely judge. Do it righteously. Judge based on what is true. He didn't give a prescription like the world thinks that we can no longer stand up for anything. Because if we do, we're judging. Yes, judge righteously. Judge by truth. See, in the first case, when Jesus says judge not, he's talking about presumptuous judgment. Making a judgment when you don't have the information. You don't really know what's going on. You're just judging out of hand. It's bold judgment without fact, truth, or compassion. 
But in the second case, when he says, judge with righteous judgment, he's talking about wise discernment. Hey, there are immoralities in this world that we are to judge as such. What does the Bible say? Judge based on that, righteous judgment. We're to make all of our judgments by our Father's perfect standards. For the day is coming when God will judge. My Father is judge. Abi Don, Ab, Abba, Father, Don, judge. My Father is judge. John chapter 5, verse 22. In fact, Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Father, the Son, does, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Judgment in the hands of Christ. And he will judge this world. Continuing on, verse 12 of, of tribe Dan, Ahietzer, the son of Ami Shaddai. Ahi etzer means my brother is help. My brother is help. How practical in the wilderness because that's what we're supposed to be for each other. My brothers, my sisters are help. We're in this together. We walk together. We are shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm moving through the wilderness as a people, not as a bunch of individuals off on our own. We help, we strengthen, we support. I, I love this. This has happened more than once on our Israel trips. And by the way, if you're not planning to go, you really should. But on our journeys to Israel, we invariably have people go on the trip who have one struggle or another. And I think of the last tour, and I think of Bob, who has since gone on to be with the Lord. And it was long a dream of his to go to Israel, but Bob was in a wheelchair you have not seen this kind of my brother is help support until you've seen a bunch of guys slowly wheeling a wheelchair down the Mount of Olives. Everywhere we went. And I never asked for it. I, I never said, hey, we're going to need a bunch of you all to jump in. I'm not going to do it. But we need a bunch of you <laughs> to get behind this and help Bob through this and Bob went all over Israel. Bob was baptized in the Jordan to help him. Guys, helping him out of his wheelchair and down into the water so he could be baptized. I mean, wow, my brother is help. Please don't forget, that's what we're supposed to be for each other, not hindrance, not in opposition. My brothers, my sisters, we are help one for another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, so Paul says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Ooh, that's a judgment. <laughs> Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And be patient with everyone. And you know what? We also have a helper on the journey. See, my brother is help. John 14, 26, Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, Jesus says, John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. I said this to a brother on Friday. You know a church is spirit-filled when Jesus is preached at that church because he will testify of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the helper. My brother is help. We are not in this wilderness alone. You never are. We have our family and we have our Father and we have the Spirit of Christ helping us along. Verse 13, the next one is of Asher, of tribe Asher. We have Pagiel, the son of Akron. Pagiel, I like this one, means event of God. Event of God. And what was Israel's deliverance if not an event? Now, I'm sure Pagiel's mother was like, oh, he's such a little event. Or maybe it was a really long labor. So she's like, this is an event of God. I don't know. I don't know. Pagiel, event of God. I need to say this to y'all, and please hear my heart. Some events are for God. I met a couple last Sunday who said, and, and I quote, coming here is like the event of the week. And at first I thought, wow. This shutdown's gone on long, way, way too long if this is the event. But, but then I went, wait, no, wait, no. 
This should be the event of the week. Shouldn't it? Should we not look forward to Sunday morning rather than, oh, set the alarm, honey. I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to church. Honey, you need to go to church. I don't want to go to church, but you're the pastor. <laughs> you know what's marvelous? I, I can tell you this honestly. I felt that way over the years in ministry. There were many times I did not want to get up on a Sunday morning. I have never had a Sunday since we started the Bridge Fellowship that I felt that way. Not one. Yeah, good job. Way to go. <laughs> No, I love being here, and I love our fellowship, and this is the event that is for God. When they said that last week, I'm like, yes, that's what it should be. This should be the highlight of the week, the event, but not for us. It's the event for God. And this is what you got to hear. And you guys are here, so this is easy to hear, but in this season, I know it's gotten really comfortable just staying home. And I am not talking, those of you listening in right now, you're you know, squirming a little bit and you're moving your coffee cup over and you're going, wow, maybe I should at least get out of my slippers. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not, for those of you at home, and I want to speak to you directly, I am not saying that you are wrong in being home. I, I'm trusting that that's between you and the Lord. And for health reasons or other concerns, you're home right now. Okay, I get that. I understand that. But brothers and sisters, Though I understand that, please hear me. The gathering of the saints is first and foremost an event of God. That is, it is the event for God. And what I'm getting at here is would we deprive him of a single voice lifted up in worship? Of a single heart hungering to hear his word? Would we say, now, nah, Lord, we're staying home. Now, nah, Lord, I'm really comfortable here. Can you imagine an angel at the throne room of God saying, you know what, Lord, a bunch of us have decided to hang out in our home group this morning. It's just more comfortable. We're kind of happy doing that. I love home groups. I think home groups are incredibly significant and important. But my friends, we don't gather in mass like this in the temple, as it were, as a congregation for us. It's the event for God. We do this for his worship, for his praise. And every voice that is not gathered here is one less voice worshiping God. And I'm bashing on you all, and you're sitting right here. <laughs> and I know even by saying that, sadly, I risk offending some, but we have got to get our heads straight on why we gather as a fellowship, not just in homes, but as a large fellowship. We gather because this event is for an audience of one. We are here for him. We come to worship him. It is not for our pleasure, though pleasurable it may be. It is for his pleasure. Please don't deprive him of that. Come to worship him. As Jesus said in John 4, 23, an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, listen to this, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He's looking for people to gather to worship his name. And the more and the louder, man, make a joyful noise unto the Lord at the event of God. Verse 14 tells us of tribe Gad, there's Eliasap, or Eliasap, the son of Deul. Eliasap is how you'd say that in the Hebrew. Eliasap means God has added. Even in the wilderness, God has added. In fact, think about this historically. Israel went down to Egypt, 70 people strong, and they came out two to three million. Strength in numbers, God has added. God has added. That's what he does. Acts 2.47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. God has added. And God will continue to add. Whether we see it or not, God is the one who adds. But listen to me, if you missed this Wednesday night, I gotta underscore this. On Wednesday night, we heard the Lord specifically tell Moses toward the end of the chapter, down around verse 40, 49 or 50. The Lord tells Moses, you shall not number the Levites. Don't number the priests. 
Number everybody else, those who are going out to war. Do not number the priests. Saints of the royal priesthood, we are not to number ourselves. Because it's not about how many people. For our pride, for our pomp, for our arrogance, how many people we have attending our fellowship. Now, I want as many people here as possible. Why? So that all those voices will be gathered together in worship to God for the event of God. However, God is the one who does the adding, I don't need to. That's not my role. The number, and I said this Wednesday, the number that we must be most concerned with is the lost. It's not how many people are going to church in Oak Harbor or Anacortes. It's how many people are not. They're the ones who need to hear this truth. They're the ones who desperately need Jesus. And Jesus said in Luke 15, verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 15, and this is the 12th name of tribe Naphtali, we have Ahira, the son of Anon. And as we go through the wilderness, oh, so practical. Ahira means my brother is evil. What do you do with that? We were doing so well. Even Nachshon, we could do something with, but my brother is evil. Listen, note this. The word also translates, my brother is afflicted. My brother is sorrowful. Let me see if I can express what I'm hearing here. People will often act in an evil way out of their own affliction. People will often be wicked. They'll lash out because of their own sorrow. It doesn't excuse evil, wicked, mean-spirited behavior, but it just might help explain it to you or to me as recipients of someone's harshness or anger or meanness that we can immediately think, but wait, but wait. What are they afflicted by? There's something driving this. There's something that's bringing this out in them. And as we journey on, if a brother is evil towards you, a sister, a parent, a spouse sins against you, do everything you can to recognize it in terms of their affliction, the pain that they're coming out of. And by the way, if you address that, even if they won't even hear it, it'll help your heart. It'll help us walk with compassion and grace with one another. I, I don't know how many of you are watching WandaVision right now. <laughs> You're looking at me like, excuse me? So probably not many of you, but there's a show on Disney that's called WandaVision, and it's, it's a takeoff of the Marvel Universe, and it's, a, it's been a fascinating show, really interesting. We've been watching through it at home, and there was a line spoken, and I don't normally do this, but it was so good, I grabbed my phone and jotted it down real quickly. And the line was this, what is grief but love persevering. Wow. God just spoke to me through a Marvel character. <laughs> oh, he can speak all kinds of ways, folks. What is grief but love persevering? And if someone gives you grief in the wilderness, persevere in love for them and recognize they're coming probably from a place of sorrow or affliction themselves you may not even know about. It increases our compassion when we recognize the afflictions and the sorrows of others. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. The salvation is leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world, that just produces death. And remember this, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Why was, why was Jesus a man of sorrows? Wouldn't you think being son of God He'd have the most to be joyful about. And the Hebrew writer tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. The joy, there's joy in Jesus. Little children don't go to a, a puddle glum, you know? Little children don't go to an Eeyore. Little children are drawn to joy, and they were drawn to Jesus. How is it that he was a man of sorrows? Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But listen to me, the sorrow of Jesus was not from self-pity. No, the sorrow of Jesus was from his deep compassion. The sorrow of Jesus was from knowing that those who despised him were lost people. That's grace. That's compassion. That's what we're invited to. And by the way, speaking of the lost, as we kind of pull this all together here, not one of these men entered the promised land. Not one of the 12. In fact, none of the warriors or leaders of that entire generation entered the promised land. If, if you look over or just listen to this, Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times, 10 times, 10 spies, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. The only two men of that entire generation who would enter the promised land with the upcoming and new generation were Joshua and? No, Mad Dog. <laughs> Caleb means Mad Dog. We're going to get to Caleb later on. Joshua and Mad Dog, they get to go in because they trusted the Lord. They didn't spurn the Lord. All the rest did. And so 11 days became 38 years. Israel, as a nation, took the long way home and are still taking the long way home. Now listen to this. <laughs> I, this is one of those, I went home Friday, after discovering this Friday morning, and um, walked in the door, and I just went, Cheryl, and she knew, Rick's found something. I'm like, you're not even going to believe, you're not going to believe what I found. This is unbelievable, it's incredible, it's fantastic. It's God, it's awesome. She's like, what is it? I'm like, I'll tell you Sunday. See, she gets it at home too. Here it is. I'm looking at the names, and I'm like, what if we took all 24 names? Now, we don't have time to go through the other 12. I'm not going to go name by name through the other 12, but I will do this. What if we took all 24 names, and just in order, we gave the name of the Son, and the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Father? What if we just did that, and then wrote it out like a sentence? We've seen this kind of thing before. Genesis chapter 5, if you go through the names of the 10 generations from Adam to Noah, in these names, you get the gospel. Take their name and write it out as a sentence. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, mind-blowing. So I thought, I wonder, huh. Listen to this. It speaks as though a prophetic word from an Israelite. Here they are. I'm going to put the names all together. Just one long sentence. Listen closely. My God is a rock, a field of light. I'm a friend of God, the rock almighty, the prophet my noble kinsman was given of God in littleness. Who's that? Baby Jesus. Given in littleness. Amazing. My God is father, strength. My God has heard because my kinsman, Jesus, is majesty. He is the reward of God and the rock has ransomed. My father is judge the one who is my hewer, that is, who cuts down. But my brother, Jesus again, is help. My kinsman is almighty. The event of God is stirred up. God has added because we know God, but my brother is afflicted, having eyes to see. Having eyes to see, my afflicted brother. Israel is afflicted but will be given eyes to see. Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. It's as though an Israelite through these 24 names is speaking out the heart of a people who finally recognize their Messiah in Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, it is through their afflictions that Israel as a nation will finally see the Lord. Now, the most afflicted one in all history is Jesus, a Jew. But the most afflicted people is Israel and have been. By the way, just heard this morning, I don't know if you heard this. You know the oil spill that hit the coast of Israel over the last week? It was by Iran. It was an act of terror. The most afflicted people. But understand that the most afflicted Jew, Jesus Christ, through his afflictions is how we see our way through the wilderness. It's how we get to where we need to be. And there's a little phrase, last thing here, a little phrase that we hear four times in this first chapter of Bamidbar in the wilderness. And it indicates, this phrase, our following him in his afflictions. What do you mean? In verse 2, verse 18, verse 20, and verse 22, we see the little phrase, head by head. Now listen to this. Head by head in the Hebrew is gogolot. Gogolot. It literally translates of the skull. It's where we get the word Golgotha. Golgotha is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Golgolot, of the skull. Golgotha, place of the skull. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, brothers and sisters, even in the wilderness. And that's how we weather the wilderness. Through trust in the afflicted one, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And I pray that we will take these things and now really chew on them and think through them and process what it is that you have put before us. I pray, Father, for the kind of feeding that would equip us in wilderness days and in difficult times ahead that will not only prepare us but strengthen us as we walk together to the final day, the day of Christ Jesus. I thank you for your deep love for us. And I pray, Father, as we have spoken of those who are lost, that if there's anyone who hears this teaching this morning, anyone among us or watching, that today will be the day of salvation. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would bring this to pass in Jesus' name. Amen.